0: Years ago, in what is now the country of France, a Christian named Fortunatus wrote a hymn to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The chorus reads as thus Welcome, happy morning. Age to age shall say, Hell today is vanquished. Heaven is won today. 1500 years later, on another continent, we gather to join our hearts with Fortunatus. Easter is a happy morning. We join with the saints of every age who have called upon the name of Jesus. Why is it that an event that occurs some 2,000 years ago in which we declare Jesus rose from the dead can bring us such happiness today? Why is it that no matter what your present feelings are or your present circumstances the disappointments, the struggles, the difficulties of your life, why should you welcome this morning with happiness? How is it that this day, your declaration, welcome, happy morning, in some way can dispel every darkness that confronts you? Whether it be a darkness within your heart or a darkness outside of you, it does not matter. Everyone who believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ can say, Welcome, happy morning. You see, what happened 2,000 years ago is a guarantee of your future resurrection. Now, your future resurrection is more than just a casual belief that there's something after this world. It is even more than the thought that you will spend eternity with God in heaven. Your future resurrection guarantees to you a life in which you can simultaneously enjoy the fullness of God and the fullness of life on planet earth. Whatever you hoped this world might bring to you and has not delivered, you will experience in glory. Anything that may not be there will be replaced by something even more wonderful. You see, in the resurrection, God is prepared to give you far more than you could ever ask or imagine. And the best part of it all, you will be, for the first time in your life, able to enjoy all of the blessings of a perfect world without sinning. You will not be tempted to love the gift more than the giver. You will be entirely free from even the presence of evil in your heart or in anybody else's heart. You will live in peace, You will have perfect rest. You will have perfect joy eternally. And you will know God as he knows you. Is that too good to be true? Is that a fantasy? Is that pie in the sky thinking? Well, often we act like it's not true. We cling to our sin. We chase after the things of this world as if that's all there is to my happiness. But your future resurrection is not fantasy. It is not wishful thinking. It is the sure hope of everyone who places their trust in Jesus Christ. You see, Fortunatus understood it Welcome, happy morning. Age to age shall say. That means every generation of those who believe in Jesus Christ will sing this. Hell today is vanquished. Heaven is won today. We're going to read verses 19 through 26. That's picking up from where the uh, scripture reading today left off. So if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll start in verse... 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign, until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Focus in on verse 19 for a moment. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we of all people most to be pitied. In order to make clear the resurrection glory, Paul must first imagine what what would the uh, life be if the resurrection had not occurred. And Paul says, if there is no future resurrection, if what I just spoke to you a minute ago is just mere fantasy, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Get in your mind for a moment the image of someone that is pitiable to you. Maybe someone is homeless, maybe they're devastated, maybe they're strung out on drugs or have lost loved ones or been betrayed. Think of the person that is most pitiable in your mind. If the resurrection is not certain, you are more to be pitied than that person. If your future resurrection is not certain, then you should quit coming to hear me preach. Period. Shouldn't show up next Sunday because you're being foolish. If your future resurrection is not certain, then quit talking to people about eternal forgiveness and life. If the benefits of believing in Jesus Christ are limited to this life, you are to be pitied more than all men. Now to be clear we do experience good things from the resurrection here and now. The way I like to say it is that the 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 fruit of that resurrection day kind of spills back over into the present. We do experience comforts. We do experience victory over sin. We do experience fellowship with God and with other believers and there's things that we have in this life but every one of those is partial and incomplete. And only knowing that what we have in part now will one day be experienced in full does it make any sense. And so we have to establish, how can we be certain that there is a future resurrection that awaits us? Three points. I don't often do that, but you get three. Number one, Jesus rose from the dead. Number two, faith alone unites us to Jesus. And number three, Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection are one and the same. I'll say those again. First point, Jesus did rise from the dead. Second, faith alone unites us to Jesus. And third, Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection are one and the same. Verse 20, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. You see, Paul believes that Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact. And I don't apologize, but much of what we are in this point of the sermon is really what we dealt with in Sunday school class. So if you made it through that, you get some of it again. Christianity is the only religion in the world that is entirely dependent on the truthfulness of a historical event. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Paul is convinced because he saw Jesus Christ. But how do we know that Paul is telling the truth? Well, Paul says to us in the first verses of 1 Corinthians 15 that he was not the only one to see the resurrected Jesus beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's the half-brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You see, they, those first Christians would only believe because they actually saw Jesus in his resurrected body. How can we trust them? Do we have to blindly trust what they believe? Or do we have good reason to believe their testimony? And the arguments are very simple. This is what I tried to explain in Sunday school class. Early Christianity begins at the time and at the place where Jesus was killed and buried and declared to be risen from the dead. Early followers of Christ could go to the tomb They knew which tomb it was. They could go to the tomb. They could investigate. They could go to one person's testimony and cross-examine it with another person's testimony. They could actually do these things. You and I can't do that. But for those then and there, it would have been easy for them to do. The tomb was empty. If it was not empty, there would be no Christianity. And really, there are only two possible categories of explanation to this empty tomb. Either someone who was an enemy of Jesus stole the body, or someone who was a friend of Jesus stole the body. Or Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't take long to understand that that an enemy of Jesus Is very unlikely to have stolen the body. If some enemy had stolen the body and the apostles began to proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead, all that they would have to do is say, Here it is, is dying to cane flesh, and Christianity stops at that moment. But what about the friends of Jesus? Maybe his followers actually stole the body, maybe they buried it somewhere else. Maybe the story of Jesus' resurrection is a conspiracy theory. But if you follow this road very far, you understand that it is very, very unlikely. Why? Because people do not die for what they know to be a lie. People do die for lies all the time. But they do not die for what they know to be a lie. If the first Christians had some incentive to foster the lie of the resurrection, then maybe we might doubt their testimony. If they gained popularity or power or wealth because of their belief in the resurrection, we might question the truthfulness of their testimony. Maybe it was their pride that motivated them. They didn't want to be exposed as fools. But selfish pride only takes you so far. Of the 11 disciples, 10 died martyrs' deaths. John died in exile on the island of Patmos. They did not gain popularity or wealth or power. Instead, they were mocked and ridiculed and killed. Why? Because they would not deny that they had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. All that would have been necessary for them to save their skin was to admit that they had not witnessed the resurrected Christ. And so I ask you this question. Would you go to your grave knowing it was a lie? Put yourself in the place of those apostles. Would you go to your grave knowing that you had stolen the body and yet still be willing to die? And to think that thousands, thousands, within two months of his resurrection, thousands in Jerusalem actually believed their testimony to be true. People could have gone to the tomb. They could have cross-referenced their testimonies. Christianity does not begin in a far-off land, in a far-off time. It begins right there in Jerusalem. Now, I admit that when I first studied these things, I explored them in great depth. I read countless books, tried to understand every possible objection to these arguments. But in the end, I was convinced that there's no better explanation for the empty tomb than that Jesus actually rose from the dead. There will be doubters around you, there will be deniers. It is not easy to accept the resurrection. To believe that a human being, like yourself, actually went to the grave and then rose up from the dead is not an easy thing to believe. It doesn't just happen. And to think that Jesus not only came up out of the tomb, but that he came out in a completely transformed body, a body that is like our body and yet completely new. That's hard to believe. Jesus could be touched, he could talk, he could eat, but he could also walk through walls. Jesus wasn't just resuscitated. He was not even raised like Lazarus was raised, who had to eventually die again. Jesus is the only man in history to be raised with a body that is now imperishable and will never die. Not easy to believe that, but it is the hope upon which your faith is built. The second truth, faith alone unites us to Jesus Christ. Faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ is the only mechanism by which all the benefits of Christ become ours. Faith itself, we believe, is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts In conjunction with the preaching of the gospel, maybe some of you will actually be born again today hearing this message. But faith is also rightly called an action of our will to consciously trust in Jesus Christ. In the preaching of the gospel, we are called to believe. And hear this, only those who believe are united to Jesus Christ. Are you believing in Jesus Christ today? The question is not, did you once believe in Jesus Christ? The question is, are you now believing in Jesus Christ? We often get caught up in trying to figure out the moment in which we first believed. Far more important than knowing that moment in which you first believed is whether you are currently believing in Jesus Christ. And, I would even add, that you are continuing to believe. The longer we live our lives, the more opportunities that you have to walk away from the faith. Now, I know that from God's perspective, he will not lose any of his elect. But from our perspective, we are continually challenged to hold fast to the faith that we believe at the first This is exactly what Paul is doing in the first few verses of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, it seems that the Corinthians were being tempted to let go of Christ. Christ. They had received Christ, they were even currently standing in their faith, but something was tempting them to let go of Christ. And we can only speculate what that was. I'll give you a few things that tempt me to let go of Christ. Maybe it was taking Jesus a whole lot longer to the return than what I thought. Maybe my initial feelings of closeness with God are not as strong today as they once were. Maybe some of my expectations of defeating my sin were not being met as much as I would like. Maybe my expectations of intimacy with God are not all that I would hope for. Maybe watching people that I had shared bread with and who had believed in Jesus Christ once, watching them walk away from the faith, has created doubt in my heart. Maybe being hurt by Christians has caused doubt in my heart. Maybe just the fact that you, know, you just don't even think about it, and one day a doubt rises up in your heart. You know one thing that's often baffled me, is how someone who was basically evil in this life, if late in their life they trust in Jesus Christ, how can that person be experiencing the glories of heaven? (sighs) They don't deserve to be there. Maybe it's just beginning to doubt that this is actually God's word. The list goes on. It doesn't matter what was causing the doubt. They were experiencing it. You have your own list. We live in a day in the United States of America in 2023 where many, many people are no longer holding fast to the faith. For one reason or another, they no longer trust the testimony of the apostles handed down to us. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned. It's not like it just happened in America in 2023. While he walked this earth, he watched people abandon their hope in him. You see, early on in his ministry, the crowds flocked to him because he was feeding them. He was doing great things for them. But then he started to begin teaching that they needed to follow him to his death. Jesus says these words in Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, be ashamed; will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You see, Jesus taught that if you want to follow him, if you want to believe in him, then you also must embrace his commitment to die to this world. Jesus is calling us to die to our sin, to our own autonomy. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are declaring to him, I do not want to rule my life, I want you to rule my life. And when you understand that that's what belief means, at some point you might want to get off the train. Jesus watched multitudes leave him. He looked at his disciples in John 6, verse 66, 67. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to leave as well? Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, faith alone unites you to Jesus. But it is a faith that is not just a one moment in time. It is a faith that continues to cling to Jesus throughout your life as your only hope eternal life in the resurrection body is not given to those who walk away from the faith now just to be fair i know there have been times in my life where this is true and i've talked to other people about this for some the struggle to continue believing is not really that difficult praise the lord But for some of you, it is a raging inferno inside your heart. If you're not struggling to believe at this moment, encourage those who are. Don't look down on them. Don't say, get away from me. Help them to believe. If you are barely holding on, talk to someone else that you can trust. If you are struggling against belief and you were once believing and now you're struggling to continue to believe, you are facing spiritual forces of evil. Don't do that fight alone. I would also like to tell you that just because you have lingering doubts and feelings, that somehow you must not be a true Christian. Continue to make use of the means of grace, the Word of God, prayer, sacraments, fellowship. Read good apologetic books if you need to. That can be helpful. Read theological books. Great books out there helping you understand and interpret suffering and evil. A lot of people doubt because of that. But understand that faith is not just absolute confidence and assurance and walking on sunshine. I, I know it's hard to give this illustration in the south because we don't have many uh, frozen lakes. But in the north, when it starts getting cold, you can see the ice, The lake freeze over, and you always have the question, how thick is that ice? And as someone who's stood on ice that's only a half inch thick, you will go through it. But if you have six inches of ice, you could jump on it. And you're not going to go through it. But you've been around enough situations where you're not certain that you could even step out onto the lake, onto that ice, and be full of fear and doubt and questions, but you're still stepping onto the lake. That's what saves you. Faith is that action of committing yourself to Christ, even if there's lingering doubts in your heart. Fight those doubts. Give time and attention to nurture your faith. (sighs) Maintaining your faith takes work. I think we're taught that if, if it's of God, then it should be simple. It should be easy. There's going to be countless testimonies and glories of people who have wrestled with their faith throughout their life. The entirety of the book of Hebrews, get this, the entirety of the book of Hebrews was written with one purpose in mind, to encourage Christians who were beginning to doubt their faith, who were thinking of going back to the old ways of Judaism rather than continue their faith in Jesus Christ. The whole book of Hebrews is given to help them to continue in the faith. And listen in chapter 10, verse 35 to 39. Therefore, because I've written the previous 10 chapters, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You see, faith alone unites you to Christ, to all the blessings of eternal life. If there were other ways to be saved, then faith wouldn't be so important. There are no other ways to be saved, to be united to Jesus Christ than by faith alone. And that brings us to the third truth. Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection are one and the same. There were some in the church at Corinth who believed that Jesus rose from the dead. But when it came to believing in the future bodily resurrection of all believers, they doubted. They said, oh yeah, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I'm not so certain about my resurrection from the dead. Paul corrects them. And he basically says, it is impossible to reject your future resurrection and continue believing in Jesus' resurrection. It's impossible. Because if you deny your future resurrection, you are denying Christ's resurrection. That is a profound statement. Takes a little while to think this through. You see, the reason why it's true is that Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection are really the same resurrection. They are two resurrections separated by time, but they are not separate events. Look at verse 20 of 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean by firstfruits? Well, the firstfruits are the first gathered fruits of a harvest. A farmer plants his field of wheat, the wheat grows up, and there are always some stalks that mature faster than others, and these are the first fruits of that field of harvest. You might think of apples on a tree, right? Even though you can separate one apple from another, they are all on the same tree, and they are ripening together as, as one harvest of apples. This is the illustration Paul uses. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruit of the harvest of the resurrection, but you are the rest of the resurrection fruit. It's one harvest. That's his illustration. But Paul didn't come up with the illustration. You see, God established first fruits in the Old Testament. He embedded the idea of first fruits in the annual events of the Jewish festivals. I'm not going to take you through this too much, but just listen. Leviticus 23, good reason to study Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. When do you do this? When do you wave this first fruit?" Oh, it's during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. During the week of the Passover. This was done out of thankfulness, but it was also done out of faith. The Israelites were to be thankful for this initial fruit because they were expecting the final fruit. And Paul is saying, oh yeah, you know why Jesus embedded that into his annual feasts, so that people would understand exactly who Jesus was and what his work was on the cross. He is the true first fruits. Exactly seven weeks after the waving of the first sheaf, which is Christ, there was another feast given. It was the new grain. Fifty days. We have the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost at that time. But then there was, there was, at the end of the harvest, there was, a, there was the final harvest. And all of this first fruits connecting to the harvest, these feasts were connected for the very purpose to say that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was connected to the final harvest. Kistemacher says it this way, the term first fruits sing- signals that the first sheaf of the forthcoming grain harvest will be followed by the rest of the sheaves. Christ, the first fruits raised from the dead, is the guarantee for all who belong to him that they also will share in his resurrection. It's not just nice thinking. God has embedded it into his very Old Testament feasts to help us understand that that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was not an isolated event. You know, we could just say that, oh, Jesus rose from the dead. I don't have any clue what that has to do with me. And God said, no, 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 you don't understand. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of your resurrection. The union of the two resurrections coincides with our basic doctrine of union with Christ. You see, by faith you are united to Jesus, and it's not too much to say that whatever happened to Jesus, has happened to you and will happen to you. You hear that? Whatever has happened to Jesus has already happened to you and will happen to you. Listen to some of these little snippets. I'm just pulling these from all over the place. Galatians 2.29 says, I have been crucified. 2.19, excuse me. Galatians 2.19, I have been crucified with Christ. Oh. That's my union with Christ. What happened to Him has happened to me. Colossians 2.12, I have been buried with Christ. Romans 6.5, if you are united with Christ in his death, then you are also united with him in his resurrection. Even though your future resurrection has not yet occurred, it is absolutely certain, even though it is filled with mystery, you are already raised up in the heavenlies, seated with Christ. Because in his resurrection, you've already been raised. Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Faith unites you to Jesus. It is as if you're already up in heaven in your resurrected body, enjoying eternity. That's how certain it is. I think Fortunatus got this. I think he understood it. I think that's why he said, age to age, every Christian will proclaim, welcome, happy morning. Hell is vanquished. Heaven is mine. Whatever your current circumstances, and I know they're hard. You know, I I just heard about Connie's brother this morning. She doesn't feel joy at this moment watching him suffer. But I'm telling you, if this day 2,000 years ago had not occurred, there would be no hope. I understand that your battle with sin is ongoing and raging and difficult. I understand it's hard. I understand you get confused trying to read your Bible and understand what's true and not true. I get all of this. You feel weary. You wonder, how can I make it to the end? Continue to cling to Christ. He has not just given you a possibility of the resurrection. He has declared to you, you are already united to His resurrection. As you go out of here today and as you struggle, remind yourself of these truths. Jesus has rose from the dead. Faith in him unites me to him and his resurrection guarantees my resurrection. That is the the takeaway. You have to engage that in your heart and say, I will not give this up. No matter how much I want to some days, I will not let go. Oh, Father, help me. The faith that you have begun in my heart, bring it to completion until I see you face to face. That's my prayer for myself and for you. Amen. Please rise one more time, and let's sing 286 together. Worship Christ, the risen King. Rise, O Church, and lift your voices! Christ has conquered death and hell. Sing. Out. i